Welcome to Legal Toolkit, bringing you the latest legal trends and business initiatives to help you manage your law firm with your host, Jared Correa. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Hey, everyone. Welcome to a new episode of the Legal Toolkit here on the Legal Talk Network. If you were looking for those six season two episodes of the Twilight Zone that were videotaped, well, I mean, it's, ni- it's not 1993, just go on Netflix. If you're a returning listener, welcome back. If you're a first-time listener, hopefully you'll become a long-time listener. And if you're Isaiah Thomas with two A's, uh, make sure you keep your eyes peeled for that Brinks truck. I'm sure it's on its way. As always, I'm your show host, Jared Correa. And in addition to casting this pod, I am the CEO of Red Cave Law Firm Consulting, which offers subscription-based law practice management consulting services for law firms and bar associations. Check us out at Red Cave Legal. That's R-E-D-C-A-V-E-L-E-G-A-L dot com. If you're starting a law firm, we're hosting exclusive workshops in Boston and New York this August and September. Find out more at buildyourownlawfirm.com and start your new law firm with confidence. Finally, you can listen to my other, other podcast. Yes, I have two. Called The Lobby List, a family travel show I host with my wife, Jessica, on iTunes. Remember to rate us and comment. Only five-star ratings. No, just kidding. Great, whatever you want. Here on the Legal Toolkit, however, we provide you each month with a new tool to add to your own legal toolkit so that your practices will become more and more like best practices. So in this episode, we're going to talk about client performance. But before I introduce today's guest and topic, let's take a moment to thank our sponsors. Scorpion crushes the standard for law firm online marketing with proven campaign strategies to get attorneys better cases from the internet. Partner with Scorpion to get an award-winning website and ROI-positive marketing programs today. Visit scorpionlegal.com forward slash podcast. Next, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Thomson Reuters Firm Central, cloud-based legal practice management that streamlines your day and automates non-billable administrative tasks so you can accomplish more with less. Answer One is a leading virtual receptionist and answering services provider for lawyers. You can find out more by giving them a call at 800-ANSWER-ONE or online at www.answerone.com. That's www.answer1.com. All right, my guest today is Alan Fanger, who's the president of Empower Legal, an on-demand video service that helps law firms prep their clients for case-related events. Alan is a nationally recognized litigation attorney and legal analyst based in Wellesley, Massachusetts, which is a beautiful place to live, by the way. He's been voted a super lawyer by his colleagues every year since 2011 and has a perfect 10.0 rating on AVO. As an advocate for clients, Alan has been lauded for his ability to demystify the law and litigation procedure, creating a positive, cooperative environment for as many clients and colleagues Alan appears frequently on sports radio networks and stations around the country, where he provides analysis of legal issues that impact the sports world. So welcome to the show, Alan Fanger. Hey, it's great to be here with you, my friend. And I really feel like I have ascended to the Vatican, and I'm on with the Pope <laughs> of podcasting. So oh, I hope I, that's I, I, I'm privileged to be with you, really. <laughs> no, this is great. We've been trying to do this for a long time, and I'm glad we can get it on the schedule. Alan and I hang out regularly. So this is just like another conversation we're having. It's beautiful. Yeah. Here's what I want to do first, though, before we get into it. You're a noted sports analyst, so let's talk about this. Can you give me, as of right now, record date of July 10th, 2018, your two best waiver wire ads for fantasy baseball, and let's do one hitter and one pitcher. Absolutely positively. Now, the caveat here is that I'm I'm an AL only guy, so I'm Ooh, in three okay. leagues, and they're all American League only. So wow, my bold. picks are confined to the to the junior circuit, as they call it. I but I would go with uh, a pitcher from the Minnesota Twins named Aaron Sleegers. 
just got called up from the uh, minors a couple of weeks ago. He's had a wow. couple of good starts. You're going deep um, here. I've never yeah, even heard of that, dude. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's a, it's a small market team, but we try to keep our eyes out for the little guys. And then <laughs> on the hitting side, the Houston Astros have just called up an outfielder named Kyle Tucker. Mm-hmm. He's a what we call a five-tool player. You know, any guy who's playing for the Astros is going to be scoring a lot of runs, probably driving in some other runs, and just about all the guys on that team can steal bases. So he's uh, he's pretty close to the complete package, and I think he's going to play a lot, given that the Astros have a somewhat depleted outfield, uh, really yeah. ravaged by injuries. So yes. um, so nice. you can take those to the bank, and when they screw up, <laughs> I'm sure I'll hear from you in about a month, uh, asking me to treat you to a night at Fenway. No, I think those are pretty good. Those are two good pickups. I like that. All right, so run out and get those guys now. All right, let's talk about real legal stuff now, because I love this stuff. So you've been practicing law for a while. You continue to do so even as you develop in paralegal, which is pretty cool. So let's talk about, in your experience, how clients approach the legal process. So lawyers are practicing law every day, and I think kind of what they forget is like, just because that's their job, any client they have, it may be their first and only exposure to the legal system. And so they're lay people in the truest sense. So what do you view as like the psychological profile of the average law firm client? Well, I have to start that answer by qualifying it by saying that my clients tend to be individuals or owners of small businesses. They're not clients who are associated with companies or otherwise uh, or other large institutions. Yeah, that's So if we distill it down to that subset of clients then I would say that, you know, the average profile, that psychological profile, as it were, is of somebody who comes into the system beleaguered by a great amount of stress. They either feel like they're the victim of some sort of wrong, whether it's real estate deal gone bad, they've been uh, disinherited, they're having problems with uh, their condo association, uh, any number of encounters they might have for which they feel wronged and and aggrieved, or they're on the other side and they've been sued and they experience the sort of reflexive stress response that any defendant in litigation would experience as a result of being served with a summons and complaint. And I think that if you start with the premise that your clients are largely operating under this weight of considerable stress then I think what that does, it really forces you to consider the whole person. And I think what we are guilty of all too often as a profession is we have our client and we understand that our mission is to zealously represent that client, but we tend to put ourselves in a silo and and subliminally, if not sometimes more overtly, say to ourselves, well, my goal is to zealously represent the client and vindicate their rights, claims, defenses, and the like without considering the whole person. And we are a helping profession, and our clients come to us with vulnerabilities Mm -hmm. and fears. And I think we need to step back and amid the desire to be a vindicator of rights and a zealous advocate to say, you know, this person needs something more than just vindication and advocacy. They need us to really hold their hand a little more tightly and walk them through the system and take those vulnerabilities and those fears and anxieties and try to diffuse them and reconcile them as best we can. Yeah, and I think that's good that you made the distinction between your standard client and your client that's involved in litigation because obviously the stress is kicked up there. I was hoping you would throw around some like $5 psychology words. So I was reading an article of yours the other day 
in preparation for this podcast. And you talked about things called neuropeptides. Like that's pretty legit for a lawyer to be talking about this stuff. So what does that mean? <laughs> and how does it relate to stress? Yeah, actually, to the untrained eye, it would seem like something <laughs> you would take for indigestion. Exactly. But yes. it, Did you yeah, make but it up? It's okay it, if you made it up. No, no. I, it, it, it's, it's, actually, it's actually a real term. You know, when I've don't have anything else to do after my fantasy teams are perched atop their respective <laughs> leagues. And I start doing research into these funky, you know, neuropsychological <laughs> issues. Nice. But, but, but neuropeptides are an enzyme that causes a, like a, like a stress slash anxiety response. I'm sorry, they, they, they actually repel the stress and anxiety response. So oh, okay. what we yeah. want to do is, is, is <laughs> I, don't, I don't expect my colleagues who are listening to this to become amateur cognitive psychologists or psychiatrists. But Unless I think they stay at the Holiday Inn the previous Or something night. like that. Yeah, yeah, the Holiday Inn. And, and, they, <laughs> and they just had to watch uh, Three Dog Night last night in the lounge. Oh, man, that's but, a nice uh, pull. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. Go on, um, please. Okay. So, um, but I do think it's important that we understand that people have differing responses to stress. And in some people the amount of neuropeptides is able to sort of kick in to allow them to deal effectively with stress. And with others, they're simply predisposed, absent our more aggressive intervention, to being overwhelmed by anxiety. So, I mean, to give you a somewhat crude analogy, we always reach back into the sports world for this kind of stuff. I mean, you and I had the luxury of watching David Ortiz uh, play for uh, 14 seasons here in Boston. And what was David Ortiz best remembered for other than these moments when he was absolutely clutch and money? And stress to him was, was probably more a motivator than it was anything else. He just seemed to thrive under stress. And for those, uh, those of my colleagues who are in New York, you could classify Derek Jeter in the same way. But you know, much like they consistently performed during their careers under enormous stress, you can look to this kicker from the Minnesota Vikings, Blair Walsh, a few years ago in a wildcard game against the Seattle Seahawks at home. He had a 27-yard chip shot field goal to tie, I believe, tie the game with three seconds left. Now, you and I might actually make a 27-yard <laughs> field goal maybe, maybe like a third, a third of the time. Well, maybe you half the time, me only a third of the time. But... He has this chip shot, and you would think he could make this in his sleep. He's been practicing this, what, a million times, two million times? And he just flat out misses it. It, it, it came off his foot almost like uh, my drives come off my driver. It was just <laughs> flat out duck hooked. So why, why do or why did David Ortiz and Derek Jeter perform so effectively in the clutch and someone like Blair Walsh just choked? And... I think it's important to recognize that absent our intervention, some clients will do great in deposition, will do great in trial. Uh, they'll, be, they'll rise to the occasion, and others will fall flat on their face unless we can, first of all, identify that they're vulnerable to stress, and then, two, we condition them to perform effectively by, for example, focusing on the process and not the result. Hmm. Yeah, I, I like this. So I'm looking forward to these conversations taking place in law firms coming up where lawyers are like, look, like I'd like to represent you, but you just don't have the right neuropeptide arrangement. <laughs> Maybe there's going to be a fee agreement clause related to this. I know that uh, so many firms are uh, are starting up their own innovation labs 
yeah. uh, like Brian Cave, and I just read about Clifford Chance over in London. So maybe what they need, need to do is come up with some proprietary neuropeptide test. Yeah, that's got unless you get to it first. <laughs> <laughs> like you and I after after the podcast, we'll look. Yes, yeah, so we'll talk about that. About that. Okay. <laughs> now we talked a little bit about this. So you've got your Blair Walches, you've got your David Ortiz's. So I would imagine the same thing is relatable in law firm clients, as you just said, like every law firm client is going to be different. Some people are going to deal well with pressure. Some people are not. Are there common reactions, however, that you can identify that are useful in terms of managing clients generically? Well, I think that one of the first things you can do is when you sit down with a client and explain to them the process. And who, and who really does that, by the way? Do we, do we bring a client into our <laughs> office like at the beginning and lot. say, by the way, here's the roadmap. And the roadmap consists of, okay, in the first instance, uh, we're going to have this process called discovery. And this is what you're going to have to do in discovery. We're going to need your cooperation. And then, by the way, you're going to have to sit for a deposition. And then after that, you may or may not have to uh, appear at a trial or an arbitration. So I think what we need to focus more on is what I would call like early intervention. We sit down with the client and we size up their fears. What would be wrong, for instance, with uh, at one of your first meetings with the client to ask the following question. What about the litigation process concerns you or scares you? How many of us actually ask that question? And if we were to ask that question, wouldn't the answers that any of us would give be so instructive and helpful in assisting the client and navigating them through the process? Um, it just it just seems so obvious that that's something that we should do, and yet, yeah. at least as someone who went to law school in the eighties, I, I can't say that uh, that any of my professors spent one second <laughs> talking about like treating the client as a whole person, as a human being with feelings, emotions, concerns, <laughs> fears, peccadillos, nuances, idiosyncrasies. But yeah, we really need to drill down thing. on that. Now, those are great points. So what was your favorite band in law school in the 80s? Were you like a Flock of Seagulls guy? I love Talking Heads. Talking Heads. <laughs> oh, talking actually, heads. there were three bands in the 80s that I thought were awesome. I mean, the, the rest of the 80s to me were like a washout. But Talking <laughs> Heads, Simple Minds, and Dire Straits. That's like oh. the, in my mind, like the holy trinity of 1980s bands. Very nice. All right. While I go find my 8-track collection, we're going to take a little break. And I'm going to tell you what you should buy. Do you feel like your marketing efforts aren't getting you the high-value cases your firm deserves? For over 15 years, Scorpion has helped thousands of law firms just like yours to attract new cases and to grow their practices. As a Google Premier Partner and winner of Google's Platform Innovator Award, Scorpion has the right resources and technology to aggressively market your law firm and to generate better cases from the internet. For more information, visit scorpionlegal.com forward slash podcast today. Is your firm experiencing missed calls, empty voicemail boxes, and potential clients you'll never hear from again? Enter Answer One Virtual Receptionists. They're more than just an answering service. Answer One's available 24-7. They can even schedule appointments, respond to emails, integrate with Clio, and much more. Answer One helps make sure your clients have the experience they deserve. Give them a call yourself at 800-ANSWER-1 or visit them at answerone.com forward slash podcast for a special offer. Thanks for sticking around. I was able to locate my 1972 James Taylor, One Man Dog, 8-track. And I'm here with Alan Fanger of Empower Legal. We're talking about fantasy sports and client performance. So, 
Alan, this notion of performance analysis and performance metrics that we've been talking a little bit about, it's been adopted essentially en masse by the sports world. Like Tom Brady probably has seven dudes making him an avocado ice cream right now. So <laughs> why have other industries, including the legal industry, been so slow to adopt performance-related strategies? I think to, to answer that question, Jared, you really have to go back to the model that dictates profitability within our industry. That's always been a model that prizes the investment of time on an hourly basis in direct service to the client, but that also focuses on the rudimentary processes that we've all been conditioned to work with. So we're not generally a profession that thinks outside the box a lot. Yeah. The yeah. model has always been, okay, so you you do this for the client. It's what you're you're trained to do, what you know how to do well, and then you you bill for it. But we never think of performance metrics in any context other than the context that appears in a judge's endorsement on a motion or a judge's decision for instance, after a hearing or an arbitrator's decision after an arbitration. That, in our view, as a profession, are the metrics. So what you're doing, essentially, is you're, you're taking the metrics and you're, you're backloading them. You're saying, okay, we'll be able to figure out how the client does by whether, uh, for instance, we do well on this motion or you know, we, yeah. uh, we win this motion, we prevail on this judgment, Summary judgment's allowed. We beat back summary judgment. We beat back a motion to dismiss. And these are you know, discrete points in time during the life of a, of a piece of litigation. But what we never focus in on are the, the factors that might, along the way, improve or perhaps dampen the prospects for any of these particular outcomes. Yeah, I think that's a good answer. It, it's true. Like, I think law firms are relatively slow to adapt this kind of thing, but I think uh, folks like you who are putting this idea forward will hopefully push this envelope a little bit. By the way, that's the idea. That's That was really the impetus for my starting at Power Legal. Was I, I was finding that all the preparation that I did with a client, for instance, for deposition, which involved strictly verbal preparation for so many years, yep. resulted in the client not performing in a way that was consistent which, with what I thought was really extensive preparation. So after, you know, my 600th deposition where the client, again, fell way short of what I thought would be the expected level of performance, I decided that, you know, I need really need to revisit how I prepare clients and look at the client as a whole person and understand that clients can actually learn how to perform through a different method. And in doing my research, I found, and I, I hate to say this as a, as a Michigan graduate, but there was an Ohio State professor <laughs> in the I'm 1940s. Sorry. I'm sorry you no, it's worth, it's worth laughing at always. Uh, there was an, a, a professor at Ohio State in the 1940s named Edgar Dale who came up with something called the cone of learning. It, and not related to the cone of silence and get smart, by the way. Uh, <laughs> Good to know. The cone Thank of, you for making and, that distinction. This, I knew you'd like that. And the cone of learning says, in substance, that we remember about 20% of what we hear, 30% of what we see, and 50% of what we both hear and see at the same time. And this really explains why online learning has grown so exponentially, because it gives people a way of learning where they want, 
when they want, and more importantly, it gives them a real optimal way of processing the information that we give them. And this is a good point that you make in general as well, is that I think lawyers are often more focused on their processes, especially processes that are ingrained in law firms, versus trying to think about what is a modern client need. That's exactly right. It's like, hey, look, we've been doing this this way and with great success for years, decades. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. And I'm, I'm not trying to say that it's broken entirely, but I do think that if we give pause to understand that clients don't always perform like we want them to, then I think it's really incumbent upon us as a profession to rethink how we get our clients, in fact, to perform more at our level of expectations. And therein lies at least my idea, but there are, of course, other client-facing or certainly potential client-facing technologies that would be uh, in the same realm and trying to achieve the same ends. Well, so let's talk a little bit about that idea. So law firms are slow to adopt. They need to test things out. So if you were a law firm, well, you are a law firm, but if you were another law firm, a hypothetical law firm, how would you kind of dip your toe in the water of performance metrics? Like what's a really simple way to get into this without feeling overwhelmed? Sure. Well, I think the best way to do that would be what I would call like a multifariate approach, which would consist both of introducing new ways of learning and then accompany that with new ways of measuring whether that learning has taken hold. So in the perfect world, what I would certainly recommend to anybody sort of within earshot of this podcast would be do video training with your clients for both deposition preparation and trial slash arbitration preparation. And then using your own, you know, something as simple as a video camera with perhaps a microphone, then do mock depositions by video and then go over the video with the client, sort of breaking it down. I'm not saying do it frame by frame, but then, you know, go over the video with the client and identify where they sort of went off the rails and how they can perform better. Now that, to be sure, requires a significant investment of time. But why wouldn't anybody invest that small amount of time and resources into making sure that the client performed at their optimal level rather than taking a more cavalier approach and saying, okay, I'm just going to either give a set of verbal instructions or give them a handout, which they may or may not read and may or may not remember. And the same could be said to a lesser extent for mediation. So we have a video on mediation that chronicles a fictitious but realistic case over 50 minutes front to back. If you want your client to be an effective participant in mediation, don't herd them like cats to the mediation <laughs> session and just yeah. say, hey, look, we're going to sit there all day, bring a good book or you know, bring your laptop or your tablet and do some reading or you know, play some video games. And you know, in between all that, <laughs> the mediator is going to come in and talk to us and you know, hopefully we'll get the case settled. Well, I mean, it's a far more nuanced process than that. And the, the mediators certainly think that meaningful participation by the clients uh, actually enhances the possibility of a, of a case being resolved at mediation. So these are, these are not significant investments, and yet they can pay great dividends if they're deployed. Excellent. All right, this is good stuff. So while I look for my good boxer shorts, we'll take another break, and I will tell you more about our sponsors. 
FirmCentral cloud-based legal practice management software for solo and small firms provides a single online location for all of the tools you need to manage client files and perform client work and offers unrivaled integration with Westlaw. With FirmCentral, you can securely store and organize documents and case files, manage time tracking and billables, and collaborate with clients through a secure client portal from anywhere there is an internet connection. All right, thanks for coming back. I don't know if it's possible for you to love Swedish fish as much as I do. But now let's get back going again with my friend, Alan Fanger of Empower Legal, who's talking to me about client performance. So Alan, we've had kind of a theoretical discussion to this point, say for that last question. Let's now talk about some more practical things lawyers can do to prepare their clients for litigation or litigation related events more effectively. So let's begin by talking a little bit more about current tactics and where those fail. Sure. So, and I base much of this answer on anecdotal evidence. So what happens now is that someone gets sued, someone files suit. We may not do a particularly good job of explaining the legal principles that are going to govern the particular lawsuit or arbitration proceeding. We may not necessarily explain the discovery process adequately, and we may not explain with sufficient comprehensiveness the importance of the deposition and mediation, because those are, after all, the two seminal events and cases these days as as we get to a settlement rate of about 90%. So I think sort of from the get-go, what we need to do is we treat ourselves more like a surgeon or an anesthesiologist would treat a patient undergoing surgery. And when I've had surgery, thankfully it's not been that many times, but I've met with the surgeon, anesthesiologist. They tell me what they're going to do. They tell me how long I'm going to be under, what they're going to do while I'm under, how long it's going to take me to attain a state of wakefulness, how long am I going to be in pain, Am I going to be on pain meds, side effects of those pain meds, the limitations on my activities? So I know all that going forward. And will it reduce my anxiety completely? No, but it will alleviate some of it. And I think what That's we need That's a great to analogy. Do, yeah, we need to do whatever we can to reduce anxiety. So what would be so wrong about, at the beginning of the case, explaining the process in detail, front to back, so the client knows, and look, the client's not going to commit this to memory, but give the client an overview of, for instance, what's the answer all about? What's going to happen in discovery? What can I be expected to do? What, what are going to be my obligations? What are you as my lawyer going to do in discovery to obtain the information that you need in order to advance my position, defend the case effectively, et cetera, et cetera? Then maybe even talk about summary judgment. You know, we may have an opportunity to move for summary judgment. They may have an uh, opportunity to move for summary judgment. And this is why a party might or might not get summary judgment. And if there's a pretrial stage, what's going to happen at the pretrial? I would say know all these things. Make sure the client knows all these things well in advance. And I don't think it hurts to explain some of the legal principles that are at work in the case. And we're not asking the client to go to law school, but I think we, much like a doctor would try to explain in some rudimentary, cursory, understandable way the medicine involved in the treatment and the care of a patient, 
we similarly should be explaining the law in a way that's understandable to the client, but do it like upfront. And look, I may be as guilty of that as anybody else, but I've been <laughs> trying more recently to really front load all of this in the process. Yeah. So this idea of lawyers practicing more like doctors is uh, one that's been around for a little while, but I, I like your extension on it and that lawyers should be more like specialists, medical specialists, which I think lawyers should have niche practices and like focusing on something makes these conversations a lot easier. So that's good. Well, right. I mean, after all, we are a helping profession. Yes. And I think that sometimes we can lose sight of it because we're so focused on simply vindication of rights and, and doing what our license obligates us to do. But if you really want to understand what it means to be in a helping profession, you have to take yourself out of that particular silo and understand that you're really here to do more than that. You're here to help to be a counselor. You're a counselor to the client. And counseling them means make them comfortable, make them fully aware. Understand that the more that you can diffuse fear and anxiety, the more that you can get them to understand the process and appreciate the various steps along the way, then the better off you're going to be. You're certainly going to, to look better. Your firm's going to look better. And you're, you're going to have a client who's going to be much easier to work with and has actually greater confidence in your own abilities. Yes. Yeah, so, all right. So my last technical question on this as sort of a follow-up to an earlier conversation that we had, but this is not about guaranteeing client performance, obviously, because you can't do that. What this is about is about reducing risk of client underperformance. And you talked a little bit about this, but I think we should extend this conversation somewhat, is like, aside from the simple, we won X or we lost Y, what other KPIs or strategies should law firms use to talk about whether or not something like this is successful? I think that if you're in the firm environment, it's much easier to do this than if you're solo. What would be so wrong about having the equivalent of grand rounds within a law firm environment? So where you take various cases or case studies and you know, over lunch, like a lunch meeting, you sit around in a conference room and you kick around some specific instances in which the client performed effectively or didn't perform effectively and, and perhaps identify what the client could have done differently, what could have maybe been done differently internally. And I know there might be issues of risk management and uh, you know the malpractice insurers might be concerned about that, but it's not, it's not like you're writing anything down. It's really more like yeah. internal peer review. And I think that having the benefit of input from colleagues and being able to identify specific instances in which the client might have gone off the rails or, for instance, uh, the client didn't provide you know, a, a critical document that was only known when it was put in front of them at their deposition can really help try to get everybody to assess uh, performance you know, across an entire group of clients. So I think that's fair for a law firm. If you're not necessarily committing what would otherwise be called mistakes down on paper, but you're actually having an open-ended discussion about whether or not this stuff works. That's great. It's kind of like a soft analytics take. And, and I know, you know, from when I was with Big Law, I know we would talk about ongoing cases a lot, but we never did a retrospective analysis of cases. And of course, the rationale for not doing it is, hey, look, we're all way too busy. Like, we, we got so many things on our plate. We're trying to do the client service stuff every day. We've got firm administration. We've got service to the bar. 
and a million other things, sometimes recruiting. Like, we don't have time to do this. But again, I'm, I'm not encouraging firms to be devoting like thousands and thousands of hours. But hey, look, you got to have <laughs> yeah. lunch, right? You yeah. got to have lunch. So why not gotta turn eat. it into a productive meeting? Absolutely. All right. My last question. Let's do a little first take action here. So do you want to be Stephen A. Smith, Max Kellerman, or Skip Bayless? You can choose. Tony Kornheiser. Oh, okay. None of the above. So I don't have to get a chance to do a total Homer sports podcast. So I'm taking advantage of it. How many championships are the Celtics going to win in the next 10 years? Am I allowed to, to, to get a lifeline or ask you one question? Yeah. Okay. Are we signing Kyrie Irving to a long-term deal next year? Yes. They're going to win three in the next 10 years. Nice. All right. I like that. I can you live like with that? that. Good. Yeah. That's a great way to end the show. I feel really positive about all this stuff. This has been a great episode of the Legal Toolkit, one of my favorites. And we've been talking with Alan Fanger of Empower Legal about how lawyers can take affirmative steps to improve their clients' performance, thereby improving their own performance, by the way. Now, I'll be back on future shows with further insights into my soul, the soul of America, and the legal market. If you're feeling nostalgic for my dulcet tones, however, you can check out our entire show archive anytime you want at LegalTalkNetwork.com. So thanks again to Alan Fanger of Empower Legal for being on the show today. So Alan, now's the time you can tell people how they can find out more about Empower Legal. So hit it. Sure. They go to empowerlegal.net. We have the trailers for all our videos up there. So feel free to sample. And if you want to uh, buy off the menu, uh, there are annual or monthly subscriptions available for our videos. uh, Easily done right on the site. Beautiful. Check it out. Empower Legal. Thanks again to Alan Fanger of Empower Legal, who I would call the David Ortiz of legal podcasting. And finally, thanks to all of you out there for listening, and please tell my kids to do the same. Thanks for listening to Legal Toolkit, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Join host Jared Correa for his next podcast covering the current business trends for law firms. If you'd like more information about today's show, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via iTunes and RSS. Find Legal Talk Network on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Or download the free app from Legal Talk Network in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. If you're a lawyer running a solo or small firm and you're looking for other lawyers to talk through issues you're currently facing in your practice, join the Unbillable Hours Community Roundtable, a free virtual event on the third Thursday of every month. Lawyers from all over the country come together and meet with me, lawyer and law firm management consultant Christopher T. Anderson, to discuss best practices on topics such as marketing, client acquisition, hiring and firing, and time management. The conversation is free to join, but requires a simple reservation. The link to RSVP can be found on the unbillable hour page at LegalTalkNetwork.com. We'll see you there.